Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K., Welcome to episode 61. In a few moments, we'll be joined by author, film critic, film historian, and speaker John DeLeo to chat about those beloved character actors and his new book, There Are No Small Parts, 100 Outstanding Film Performances with Screen Time of 10 Minutes or Less, right after we take a quick look at Arts Around the Sound for Friday, April 29th. It's the final weekend for Something Rotten at Bremerton Community Theater, and you don't want to miss your chance to see this absurdly funny show depicting the intersection where Shakespeare and musical theater meet. My review is available at our website, heilmanandhaver.com, and on our Facebook page. And tickets and more info can be had at bctshows.com. And next Friday, May 6th, at long last, the rock comedy that COVID couldn't stop, Little Shop of Horrors, opens at Western Washington Center for the Arts in Port Orchard. Little Shop was mid-rehearsal when the shutdown hit, but the show must go on around here. Written by Howard Ashman, with music by Alan Menken, and directed and choreographed by our friends Dan Estes and Rebecca Ewan, this is the musical about man-eating plants that you need in your life. <laughs> so go out and get tickets. And, of course, more info at wwca.us. And coming up next week, Matt and I return to the bar. I mean, we get back behind the bar. We raise the bar. Well, whatever we're doing, we're going to need a drink. And that's right, it's another episode of In the Mix, where our cocktails acquire that Tinseltown twist, and you get a strong shot of behind-the-scenes trivia. Next week, we'll be toasting the brilliant and versatile director of stage and screen, Ilya Kazan with the East of Eden cocktail. After the 1955 John Steinbeck adaptation starring James Dean, Julie Harris, and Raymond Massey. And now, of course, it's time to toast the actors and actresses who brought so much enjoyment to our lives in under 10 minutes. In his most recent book, author, film critic, film historian, and speaker, and our guest, John DeLeo, celebrates remarkable screen performances, shining a uniquely targeted spotlight on artists who created full-blown characterizations within minimal screen time of literally 10 minutes or less. John is the author of seven books about American movies, from his first And You Thought You Knew Classic Movies, 200 Quizzes for Golden Age Movie Lovers in 1999, to his latest on the topic of our chat today, There Are No Small Parts, 100 Outstanding Film Performances with Screen Time of 10 Minutes or Less, which was just released in February and is available everywhere fine books are sold. Born in Brooklyn and raised on Long Island, John joins us from his home in Milford, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, John. Welcome, John. Hey, it's so great to be with you guys. Thank you. So how did you go about compiling this list of 100 performances in your book? Um, what was your process like, and how did you decide on what counted as screen time? Because obviously the definition of a kind of a short performance is, is definitely open for interpretation. What was your uh, um, process like in that? Well, I mean, a couple of performances uh, had caught my eye early on that gave me the idea for the book that they're kind of too short to get award attention. And then I thought, well, most movies have performances that are under 10 minutes long, just about every one of them does. And how many were standouts? And I never was in, uh, you know, was never worried about reaching 100. It was more about sort of uh, corralling them into to the, this finite list and um, having something to say about them. And so I think I made an initial list of about 300 from memory and from my own sort of personal reference sources, uh, my own index cards and stuff. And I 
knew that some of them would be too long and some of them wouldn't be as good as I remembered. And so it was a gradual process, like chipping away at marble and seeing what was left. And uh, although it's uh, arranged chronologically from 1935 to 2019, I, I, I never write anything chronologically. So I would just write them randomly and then place them in the order in which they would eventually appear. And as I got near the end, I could see where there were some chronological gaps. And I think, oh, I need a little something from the late 80s. Uh, try to focus in on that. So you'd have a kind of feeling of a kind of evenness throughout those 85 years. And with regard to screen time, I mean, in some cases, it was very easy where someone has one scene in the movie. It's four minutes long. There's nothing to, you know, to juggle around with. And sometimes... You know, something like Laura Dern in Wild, her performance is mostly fragments. And so it really was a stopwatch kind of situation. <laughs> I didn't uh, penalize people if they were unconscious <laughs> in a scene. And I didn't penalize them if they were in the long shots and they weren't really doing anything. So it tried to be, in terms of screen time, it means when they were actually present. Yeah, I think about you're talking about when they're unconscious, and I'm thinking about uh, the trouble with Harry, and you've got this dead body that's yes. in the in the bathroom. <laughs> well, there's a performance in the book, Canada Lee, as the boxer in Body and Soul, and there is a scene where he's basically just a slab. He's sort of shivering and stuff, so he's sort of semi-conscious, but I thought it wasn't really, it's not really part of what he was asked to do, so again, I didn't sort of penalize him. But I was pretty uh, accurate because if it was a 12-minute or a 13-minute performance, well, then it wasn't what I was talking about. So it was something else. The narrative style you employ in the book is unique. And it's not just about the performances, but we get some background about, the obviously, the films, the other cast and crew. You've written now, this is your seventh book. How's your style evolved or maybe your interests evolved since the release of your, your original, your first book you wrote? Yeah, the first one was my quiz book, which came out in 1999. And I wasn't even sure I was a writer at that point. I had uh, an idea for a quiz book and I was trying to be clever and write little introductions to the quizzes, but it wasn't what you'd call writing, but it gave me the confidence to try something a little more uh, complicated, a challenge myself. And I think each book has been on some level a, a writing challenge. And I'd say the biggest difference is that you can watch me get better and better at what I'm doing from book one to book seven until I feel like I actually know what I'm doing as a writer. Because I think, you know, people, uh, I was not one of those people with a writing talent who was looking for a subject. I was a guy who loved movies, who had a lot of things I wanted to say and had to find ways to say them. So I came at it from that side. And then, like I said, I feel like so much of what I'm trying to do is to get people to read my sentences the way I intended them in terms of inflection. And so <laughs> that's part of the process of trying to get better and better at making the reader hear you when they're reading. Right. Well, it's time for an audiobook. You'll just have to read them yourself. <laughs> exactly. No, nobody reads their works better than, than the author. Mm. Well, my favorite part of the groundbreaking 1967 film that you feature in the book, of course, Bonnie and Clyde, is Gene Wilder's Six and a Half Minutes. Uh, kind of falls right in the middle of your book. And uh, this, of course, was Gene Wilder's debut role. It catapulted him uh, really on, onto the road to stardom in comedy. Uh, up next was The Producers. Who else in your book is a good example of someone put on the map by their 10 minutes or less in the limelight? Well, two of them come to mind. Um, one is the great character actress Thelma Ritter, 
in Miracle on 34th Street. She's only in it for two minutes and she's got two scenes close together. And why I think she qualifies for what you're saying is that everything we all love about Thelma Ritter for the next two decades of movies, it's all right there in those two minutes. You know, the wisecracking, the warmth, that New Yorkies, that no-nonsense quality. And so it, she parlayed those two minutes into a major career. The other one, of course, comes to mind is Robert Duvall as Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird. Not that that was a star maker because the role is too offbeat to sort of, uh, you know, there's not like some great starring parts that come from playing Boo Radley, but certainly put him on the map as someone to watch. And certainly within the next decade, he, you know, but we get to The Godfather and then, of course, uh, everybody knows who he is throughout the 1970s. But that was a great start for him because you have a great actor making a debut with a very eye-catching role in a great film. So that was a real catapult for him. Well, along those lines with, uh, you know, speaking of, of Gene Wilder, now he shared the screen a little bit later with another Gene, Gene Hackman, in Young Frankenstein, which is one of our favorite films. That's one of those you watch over and over and over again. And, you know, Gene Hackman as the, uh, the kindly blind man who is about yes. to make an espresso. <laughs> um, yes. So it's it's always amazed me how many people, and me included, I think the first time I, I saw it, didn't realize it was Gene Hackman. Yeah. Who else on your list has shocked audiences by appearing in a small role, maybe disguised that nobody really knew yeah. who it was? Well, it's funny, though, about Gene Hackman was that he's not billed in the opening credits. So it was definitely designed to be a surprise. But it was such a good surprise that, as you said, some people missed the fact uh, that it was him. Um, <laughs> and I love it because he's obviously having a ball after a string of serious parts to do something so, so funny. Um, one that jumps to mind in that category is Marlena Dietrich in Orson Welles' film Touch of Evil. Hmm. because she was, of course, a legend by then, and she shows up basically for five minutes in a black wig as a Mexican bordello owner. She's billed, but I, I don't think uh, people were expecting her casting. And uh, she, she certainly not typecast, that's for sure, but she really makes an impression. And, and another one, I mean, Peter Sellers in the wrong box. And I guess that's sort of true of Peter Sellers in just about any of those makeup <laughs> roles where he sort of disappears into some loony character. And I mean, he's he's recognizable, but he's still playing a mad doctor and he's quite hilarious. And I'm sure the audience just would, uh, when that when they saw that, since he's hardly in it and he was already very famous when he did it, um, they just must have been so happy when he showed up because he truly hilarious. Well, another uh, scene, actor, role that was unexpected for fans of the stage uh, version of this show um, was Alec Baldwin showing up in Glengarry Glen Ross, uh, the 1992 mm -hmm. adaptation of uh, the David Mamet play. Uh, the scene doesn't appear in the stage version. Mamet wrote it for the film specifically, just over eight minutes long. As far as I'm concerned, makes the film, uh, which is saying something considering the cast, uh, uh, likes of Jack mm -hmm. Lemmon and and uh, yeah, Al Pacino and all these others. Uh, are there some other examples of uh, scenes that were created specifically for a character or an actor uh, that you profile in the book? Yeah, there's an, another example exactly like that one. And I agree, uh, I think Baldwin's scene is the, the best scene in the movie. It kind of encapsulates everything the movie's about in those eight minutes. Yeah. There's another example, the stage played Bell, Book, and Candle, uh, when that was made into a film, there's a role for Hermione Gingold, which is in the book. And in the play, 
she's another of the witches, but she's only talked about Bianca de Paz and they put her in the movie. And so she's got a few minutes that are very funny and, and over the top and, and quite delicious. So that's exactly the same where they took a character that's not in the play that just uh, finally found its way into the material. Not exactly that kind of thing, but I love how um, in Pennies from Heaven that Christopher Walken, up to that point, known mostly for the deer hunter and as Annie Hall's crazy brother, got to show his sort of musical comedy past by doing that fabulous tap number to Let's Misbehave. So that was a, a great example of taking, uh, making use of someone in a way that would surprise the audience. When, when I started reading your book, I thought there's got there's some actors here that seem like they're in everything. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out Paul Giamatti. Seems like he's in everything. Had to yeah. have been in a role that was less than ten minutes, but he's not in the book. Were there any other actors that you thought that going into this and doing the research that hey this guy's got to be or this this actress has to be in here because they just seem like they're in everything and then didn't make it in. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky thing. You're right. There's certain people. It's hard for me to think who exactly, but there were people I had probably five choices of which one to put in and others, it was the obvious one and people that you're right, I felt bad uh, that I didn't find place. Actually, Paul Giamatti was one of them, uh, but so many people are Maggie Smith or Angela Lansbury or Claude Rains. They're probably, and sometimes they did have something for whatever reason, there were so many components. It's sort of, you have to like the person. I didn't have to like the movie, as you know, because some of the movies I don't actually like. But yeah, there are people I, I wish I could have found room for. But I also love there are some people that aren't household names or not anywhere close to being household names that I got to talk about and uh, you know, made me feel good that all these years later, say, I could uh, shine a little spotlight on them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you think of Oscar-winning performances, short ones uh, that come to mind, Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter in 1991's Silence of the Lambs is actually 24 minutes, 52 seconds. There's 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 some argument about about exactly how long he's on on screen. That was what I got from IMDb. So we're going to go 24 minutes, 52 <laughs> seconds, over twice uh, what a lot of these folks are on screen uh, for in your book. And there was actually a couple Oscar winners. One of them being Judy Dench, uh, Dame Judy Dench now as Queen Elizabeth in uh, in Shakespeare in Love in, in 1998. Best supporting actress for her, seven minutes long. Now, there were 10 other nominees, I believe, and one other winner. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. The other winner is even shorter. It's Beatrice Strait in Network. I believe that's five, five and a half minutes. Uh, she's got one major scene. She has a couple of times she pops up, but it's really one scene. So she and Judy Dench are the two actual win performances in the book. But um, I'll just rattle off the other ones that were nominated. Claire Trevor in Dead End, Carolyn Jones in The Bachelor Party, Sylvia Sidney in Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams, Sarah, uh, Sylvia Miles in Farewell, My Lovely, Jane Alexander in All the President's Men, Maximilian Schell in Julia, uh, Geraldine Page in The Pope of Greenwich Village, uh, Laura Dern in Wild, and Ruby Dee in American Gangster. Wow, that's quite a list. Yeah, and they... Most of them lost because of the brevity of the performances when you're up against people who are in it for 20 minutes or 25, say, sure. it's it's hard to win. So those two women, uh, Judy Dench and Beatrice Strait, certainly couldn't have gone into those roles imagining I'm going to get the Oscar for this one. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, how strictly did you stick to that 10 minutes? If it was, again, were you stop watching things? Is it, you know, 
ten oh five. Up, oh, sorry, out it goes. Well, well, when I got to, um, as I said, most of them it wasn't even close. But if right. it was ten oh five, and I really was high on it, I, I, there's always a way to shave five seconds off of something. You know, they cut away from yeah. you. For, <laughs> it's like, that's good enough for me. You're still in the room technically, but I can't see you, so that's okay. Right, right, right. You're the author. You get to make the rules. Uh, that's what I said. So, <laughs> yeah, I like yeah, it. Anyone can come after me with their stopwatches and argue <laughs> about something or other. That'd be a commitment. That's a lot of hours you spent watching those films. Yes. So, uh, John, speaking of, of sitting there with a stopwatch and, and watching all these films, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about the process that you go through once you determine how you're going to put this movie in or consider it? Uh, the process to get all that information that you you put in when you're putting a chapter or a piece together. Yeah, I, I would certainly first look at the performance again, go right to the two minutes or eight minutes or whatever that I remembered to see if I wanted to uh, use it. And if I was still intrigued, I would watch the entire movie straight through just to see how the performance, um, you know, how it falls in the movie in terms of its impact. Uh, what it does to the plot, um, how it changes the course of things, or what that person brings to it that's unlike anybody else in the movie. And then um, I would try to find a way to start the essay. Sometimes it was something about that person's career. Sometimes it was very specific to the movie. You know, whatever it is I really wanted to talk about with that individual actor. And then, of course, go on to the values of the film overall, the pluses and minuses of the uh, the director and the uh, the script and the other actors in the movie. And um, as I said, where it fell in that particular person's career, if it was at the beginning or the end, and all kinds of things. And like I said, I gave myself basically free reign, but they're all about exactly the same. They're all three pages. So I kind of got into a groove where I could just sort of feel what was the beginning, what was the middle, and what was the end. And sort of each of the books I've done, they, they kind of teach you how to write them as you're in the sort of about a quarter of the way in. And then you feel like you're really in a groove and you know what you're going to be doing on day three of each piece or how many times you have to reread it before you think you're done, at least for now. So, um, yeah, I did kind of get into a kind of very regimented uh, format uh, for the, I think, 13 months it took to write it. Did you just start kind of with your favorites and and you said you you, you moved through yeah, organized the book chronologically, but you obviously didn't watch them chronologically. Was that where you started with a few of your favorite films? Yeah, I tried I get started with ones that were actually Alec Baldwin and Glenn Gary. Glenn Ross, I think, was the second or third one I wrote because I knew that was such a shoe-in. Yeah. But yeah, I never liked to, to write the early pieces too early in the process because you know, I want the early pieces to be especially strong. So I really want to be in the groove of write, how I'm writing the book. So like midway, I wrote the first one, but I always write the last piece in any book as the last piece, the very end. So the Al Pacino one for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was the last one I wrote. I think if Matt and I were writing the book, we probably would have started with Glengarry Glenn Ross, for sure. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, so is that your favorite, or do you have another one that is your favorite out of all the scenes in the book? Oh, I don't think I do have a favorite. They're, like they said, they fall in, in different kinds of categories. I was sort of fascinated. There's a very little-known actor named John Ray, who has a four-minute role in Frank Capra's Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And I, he, probably more than anybody else, was the impetus for the book because he shows up in the middle and he changes the course of the plot. He changes the outlook of the main character. 
and his scene, uh, the movie goes from sort of fish out of water comedy uh, until he shows up. John Ray is a representative of the depression and bursts in as a hungry farmer into the mansion and changes the movie. And that sort of fascinated me. He's not a name actor. The character doesn't have a name. And yet now we're watching a different movie because this actor not only had a well-written part that changed the plot, but was so moving and unforgettable in the role, even though nobody really knows the name of the guy. So I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but that was certainly a very important part of the whole book, the whole idea and the whole concept of the book. But um, uh, yeah, I have to have a special place uh, in my heart for every single one of them or I couldn't have spent the time I spent with them. That's interesting. It got me thinking as I was I was I was reading it about some of the movies and and scenes that uh, I've always gravitated to that are, that are on the short side. And obviously the Glenn Gary Glenn Ross one. But then I started to think about some of the the other comedies that I've watched. Canadian Bacon is one that I always enjoyed. A Michael Moore film that's got a a, a few of the short scenes in it. So I Married an Axe Murderer for me might be one that's probably got about. I don't know, five or six, Phil Hartman as the security guard, um, yeah. an Alcatraz, uh, uh, Stephen Wright, you know, and some of those. How about you, Matt? What 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 about you? What are some of your favorites? Well, I, I like that uh, your reference to Sorry, Murder, Next Murder, because, you know, and I got to ask John this. So would Mike Myers qualify if he's in character for less than 10 minutes, a different character than that leading role? That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> There's a whole other book for you. <laughs> you can make a case for that, sure. Um, the one, the opener in the in the, my book is uh, Elsa Lanchester in Bride of Frankenstein, and she right. plays two parts. One's three minutes and one's four minutes. So even added up, she didn't hit the ten minute mark. Well, that's the thing about a, a book like this that you know any movie lover would have their own 100 outstanding uh, film performances with screen time of 10 minutes or less. Yeah, I I gotta go. As far as favorites go, you could probably tell by the the way our questions were written. Uh, gotta go with either of the genes, um, Gene Wilder, yeah. Gene Hackman, and, and you do you really kind of have to take the work as a whole. Those you know those scenes as part of the, the larger film. In the case of Young Frankenstein, maybe the funniest part of the whole movie. You know his yeah. look at the end. Uh, I was gonna make espresso. I just <laughs> <laughs> and and nobody would deliver it the same way Gene Hackman did. Um, but uh, yeah, what are those two? Of course, yeah, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin. Um, we, when Greg and I went to do a live read during quarantine uh, with some friends of Glenn Gary, uh, we were astonished that uh, where where's that part? Where where's yeah, Baldwin? That's the part? best part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, John, you mentioned you mentioned also looking at the whole body of work. So uh, a scene that I shared uh, with Matt the other day that I, that just came to mind was Hugh Jackman as the Wolverine in X Men First Class, literally twenty five seconds. And to me, it it made the film because and I'm not going to use what he said because it's not safe for um, you know for a family show, <laughs> yeah, but general audiences. Uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> e exactly. But but knowing his character uh, as you travel through all of the X Men movies, and then this one 25 second clip where they walk in and he just basically tells them to go pound salt in the way that the Wolverine would was just hilarious. Well, I think I, I also addressed something like that in the introduction where I thought about James Caan in Godfather 2, because I think that's a four-minute scene, but so much of the impact of it is the fact that he was in the first one for so long, so he's already built the character in a, in a real, in a major role, so that was a reason not to use him, because he wasn't starting from scratch, so I guess it would, would apply to Hugh Jackman, too. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> You're just gonna have to do a, a second, a second hundred, and uh, that'll be the uh, you know part two. Okay. Okay. 
<laughs> that would be your eighth book. You've written seven. Uh, what's what's next? Now you also do some film criticism. Uh, you you do a lot of public speaking, uh, touring around, talking about your book and the, and the subjects in your books. Uh, what's next on the horizon for you? And uh, how, what's the best way for our audience to keep up with everything that you're up to? Well, um, I'm on social media. I'm j o h n dot d i l e o dot one two on Instagram, and I'm on Facebook, and I'm at John DeLeo on Twitter. So that's how you find me. In addition to promoting this book, I have two ideas for an eighth book, and I'm still going back and forth, so I'm not really at liberty to say because I don't really know which. But um, I'll, I'll probably not—I probably won't start anything till the fall because I'm still kind of consumed with getting the word out on this one. I'm also doing a classic film series here in Milford at the Milford Theater where I live. Every Sunday at four o'clock, I introduce a classic and uh, have a Q&A after, so I'm enjoying that too. So, and that's a couple of blocks from where I live, so that's nice. That's right up our alley. Matt and I love to do that. We, we participated in something like that, uh, one of our local theaters here in, in Washington, and that's a great way to get classic films out to the, uh, you know, the masses and make it more than just the viewing experience, right? So doing the intro, doing the Q&A. Yeah. Definitely something that piques the interest and keeps these films alive, which is great. And John, you'd probably agree that seeing a lot of these classic films on the big screen the way the director intended really changes the movie in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I mean, so many people will say that. That's usually their biggest comment was, oh, my God, I've seen this five times on television. I saw things I never saw. I didn't know how beautiful it was. I never knew what the close-ups could do in a theater. You know, all, the, all those things that are... you. I expect to hear, but it's so nice that people are experiencing that. Also, the you know when you're home, most people they're getting up and down. They answer the phone just to have the undivided attention of watching something like Casablanca or It's a Wonderful Life uninterrupted on the big screen. They people often always say, "Yeah, I saw scenes I never saw before because you were actually not moving through the whole thing. <laughs> you know, no distractions. It's it's fantastic. Yeah." Yeah, and and especially being back after COVID, back into a theater with a shared yeah. experience with yep. with other movie lovers, nothing like yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Well, John, this has been great. Uh, all your books are available at johndeleo.com as well, I believe. Yeah, that's fantastic. True. And Amazon, everywhere fine books are sold. Yeah. We've sure we sure enjoyed this one, and I hope the rest of your. Uh, your press outings to promote the book uh, go well and great receptions. And uh, when, when you come up with your next topic, uh, let us know, and we'd love to have you back on and, and announce it. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you, guys. Uh, thanks for your time today. Uh, thanks, John. Sure. Bye-bye. Well, thank you again to our guest, John DeLeo. John's latest book, There Are No Small Parts, 100 Outstanding Film Performances with Screen Time of 10 Minutes or Less, and his other six are available on his website, johndeleo.com. You can also follow him at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all linked in the show notes. And coming up on episode 62, we're very excited to announce that we'll welcome legendary writer, playwright, director, and producer George Stevens Jr. to the show. The son of two-time Academy Award-winning director George Stevens, our guest made a name for himself as founding director of the American Film Institute and co-creator of the Kennedy Center Honors. So tune in Friday, May 13th for an episode you do not want to miss. And if you enjoyed episode 61 as much as we did, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. You can find all the latest on HeilmanandHaver.com, along with all of our past episodes, popular segments like Get to Know a Theater, In the Mix, and behind-the-scenes artist interviews. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver.